and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies with a giant ocean between us, talking cloud, Homer Simpson and Lego form, and technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode 7, recorded on 19 March 2015. Happy birthday, Scott! Wait, what's that? Wait, today's your birthday, right? Uh, I don't know, is it? I think it's the 19th year, but it's not the 19th for you yet, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little messed up on that. Well, I mean, I can celebrate a little bit early, and this way you and Jason Himmelstein can actually overlap. Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, ooh, you know what? We could, uh, we should have invited Clint Richardson on. He, he could have had his birthday today, too. Really? Yeah. Yep. All sorts of us out there. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about that, but... It's not too bad to have your birthday on the 19th, because you're sufficiently recovered from March 17th, and then you just get to start the ball rolling again. Ah, yes, yes. I'm guessing, like, the perfect weekend would be uh, St. Patrick's Day on a Thursday, then? Yeah, that that would work pretty well. So, uh, Scott, uh, happy birthday, man. Hopefully things are well down in Australia, and... Uh, I guess Cyclone Pam, I think it is. Uh, hopefully it's steering clear of you. But uh, yeah, cool. Uh, what's been going on down there, man? Uh, not much. I know not of this cyclone that you speak about. We don't really get those in Sydney. Um, they tend to affect uh, stuff to the north of us. We're, we're, we're far enough south that we, we avoid all the fun stuff that goes on with that. Uh, I had an interesting week. Went out earlier this week. Um, did a presentation at the local Sydney SharePoint user group uh, talking about Office 365 and authentication, uh, which really turns into a discussion about uh, not so much Office 365, but Azure Active Directory uh, and all the sync technologies behind that, Uh, which at this point, there are four sync technologies. It's really fun. Four? Seriously? Four? Four. So, so we have DirSync, we have AD, AAD Sync, or Azure Active Directory Sync. Uh, we have AD Connect, which is in uh, public preview. And then you have uh, your good old buddy FIM, which someday is going to turn into MIM. And bippity boppity boo, uh, you know, we're all going to have users in the cloud. So what is the recommendation from Scott Hogue? Ooh, uh, you know, I told folks to go ahead and uh, deploy uh, AAD Sync if they're doing it today. Uh, and we're going to see that new AD Connect tooling, which is in preview now. Uh, that's going to come out some point over the next couple months, hopefully, uh, be kind of released or GA'd. Uh, and at that point, we can transition everybody over to that. You know, it's kind of confusing because when everybody stands up a new tenancy, so if you go and deploy a new Azure Active Directory tenant, uh, or you go into Office 365 and say, hey, I'm going to start a new trial, or I'm spinning up a new business, things like that. Uh, When you spin those up and you go ahead and activate DirSync, or you activate directory synchronization through through the portals, and you click the button and say, yes, I I, want to do this, um, the tooling that it offers you is DirSync, which is pretty interesting since AD Sync GA'd uh, back in uh, November, uh, November, December 2014. So it's been out for a couple months and, and those two portals still haven't caught up with that. Um, so potentially folks could be deploying the really old tooling. They could be deploying the newest tooling that's going to be old um, or uh, you know, in a couple months we'll have AD Connect 
and everybody will be able to go that route. Huh, that's that's kind of crazy. Any uh, any other fun stuff going on down in the land of Oz? Uh, not too much. I found out that we are uh, closing up shop here, so I've been doing a lot of uh, admin time lately, uh, working on how to figure out how to get all my stuff back to the U.S., uh, so we're, we're going to work through that and it's going to take a couple months and, um, probably head back to the U S sometime in the June timeframe. So trying to figure out where to, where in DC to land and, uh, figure all that stuff out that comes along with it. Um, one of the interesting things is we can't bring any food or alcohol back into the U S unless it's in our carry-ons. So I think we're going to have some, uh, wicked parties. Uh, leading up into those last couple of weeks before we come back. Uh, I'm guessing you could probably always, you know, put stuff in the kids carry on, right? They don't really, they don't disregard that, do they? That would work. One of the interesting things is, uh, so it's myself, my wife, and then we have two young children. And uh, it takes 80 to 90 days for your crate to cross the ocean and come all the way around the world and get back uh, from Australia to the east coast of the United States. So we're potentially looking at any place, and then it's got to clear ports and customs and all that stuff once it actually hits. Uh, so we're potentially looking at living out of suitcases for a hundred days or so, um, which could be, you know, you know that can be a little tough to get enough clothes in your suitcases to, um, and toys for the kids and and things like that. So I don't think there's going to be too much room left for, um, uh, what would you call them, the assorted sundries. Yeah, yeah, no, those assorted sundries and potent potables definitely, you know, they only have so much room for them, so completely understand that. But that's uh, it's definitely exciting news, though I'm guessing nerve-wracking at the same time. Uh, yeah, a l- little bit of stress. Uh, we're, we're just going to take it as it comes and um, play it by ear. It was a lot more structured coming out here, so this is uh, a little more fluid and on our terms, so we're we're trying to put all those pieces and parts together and just figure out um, shipping, insurance, plane tickets, uh, uh, you know, how to shut down leases and, uh, you know, all all the utilities and things like that. It's all a little bit different out here than it is in the U.S. Um, So coordinating some of that stuff can be interesting sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there's always space at Casa del Usher if you need it. Um, I would just recommend uh, take it one shot at a time or, you know, one drink at a time. Can I live in the garage with the broken pipe? Yeah, totally. Ah, sweet. At least it'll be summer when I get there, so it won't be frozen anymore. I'll have fresh water the whole time. Yeah, so it's supposed to snow this coming uh, Friday morning, so I don't know what's going on. I think Mother Nature didn't get the memo. Yeah, you know, we're in the same boat. We're heading into autumn here, and it was uh, 91 Fahrenheit yesterday. So we're, we're, we're doing pretty good as well. Nice. <clears throat> yeah, so I guess uh, you guys are keeping the heat. We're keeping the cold, so... Um, yeah, so I guess back here in the DC area outside of uh, snow and whatnot, uh, it's been pretty, uh, pretty quiet week. Um, been doing a lot back in Azure land, uh, mostly learning the dev story, scary enough. So look out. <clears throat> I understand how to actually build things in Azure now on the developer side, not just the infrastructure stuff anymore. Um, that's a scary thought. It is, uh, you know, actually understanding how to debug things and build and publish and whatnot. Uh, I think probably the more interesting 
thing is being able to go in and actually go, huh, that's pretty sweet the way you can intercept things and kind of change them on the fly through Azure's uh, capabilities that to actually make happen would require quite a bit of work to like uh, take over your IIS instance and have it disregard certain uh, configuration files, but pretty cool stuff. So, so to bring it back to Dilbert, does your pointy-haired boss realize the power that he's given you by teaching you all these new things or giving you the ability to teach yourself? Uh, he, he really hasn't, but uh, then again, uh, he hasn't promoted me, <clears throat> promoted me to VP of the zombies yet, so I'm looking forward to that. Mm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm waiting to see your blog post about mentoring with your CEO and seeing if you get promoted to a VP just because you've been mentored. Well, you know, it uh, could happen, but I digress. Um, we did have a little bit of follow-up from last week, uh, looking at the show notes, which uh, we've been prepping over the past couple days. Uh, I failed to put this in there, but uh, that eager young lad from Pennsylvania, uh, Tim Farrow, uh, posted something up a couple days ago uh, with the announcement of, uh, I believe, Express Route for Office 365. Yep. Uh, becoming more generally available. So we were just kind of curious, you know, what our thoughts were on it. Uh, I think that was down at the Converge conference. It was kind of funny Monday morning when that was going on. It just seemed like uh, all the different product groups quickly started uh, going and posting things left and right. But any thoughts from you on uh, Office 365 and ExpressRoute? So I'm wondering why people are surprised by this. Um, this was actually announced oh, quite a while ago. Um, uh, or at least a couple months ago. Um, and maybe I caught it because I'm here in Australia and it was announced with something that was kind of specific to Australia. And that was the opening of the Azure data centers here um, on the continent. So when Scott Gu came out and did his announcements for uh, the data centers opening here, one of the things he mentioned was, hey, if you get an Azure Express route connection set up, that's also going to give you a secure connection to our Office 365 data centers. Um, so we had known that that was coming for a while. I was actually talking with the user group about it um, uh, on Tuesday night, and you know, none of I, I hadn't seen any of those announcements from Convergence or anything. So uh, I, I think to a certain degree, some of that stuff had already come out. I think it's certainly exciting news. Uh, it gives uh, customers quite a bit of leverage. Um, and takes away some of those worries around, um, you know, just the, uh, the the public internet transport of some of that stuff. So now um, potentially um, you have the ability, at least internally, to turn Office 365 into um, kind of this magical version of Microsoft hosted everything in the cloud. Um, but really, uh, the, the lower latency thing is going to be nice. Uh, I know you probably spend quite a bit of time. Uh, working through tuning and network performance and, you know, how, how can we make files sync fast enough? How can we send emails fast enough? Um, all those kind of uh, things that come along with planning an Office 365 deployment. Uh, one of the questions I have about it is, as of today, uh, not every single Azure, Azure data center also has Office 365 in it. So uh, my understanding of that is, um, Azure has some dedicated data centers, and in some cases, they're, they're co-load. There's a bunch of Microsoft services together. So if I've purchased an Azure Express route 
or if I've purchased an Office 365 Express route, which for the most part they've said, hey, that's going to be really an Azure Express route, right? Um, you know, do I have to actually get two legs set up to, because potentially, you know, if I'm deployed in something like, um, uh, like the Oregon data centers, uh, I think those are still separate these days. So do I actually have to have two legs or am I going to have one leg into an Azure data center, uh, just through the, the existing express route services. And then Microsoft's going to do something on their, um, backbone, you know, they've got all the dark fiber and everything. Uh, sitting between the data centers. So they already do that for uh, VNet to VNet connections um, in Azure. So if you do regional VNet to VNets, um, they've transitioned all that traffic onto their backbone at this point. So it doesn't go out over the public internet anymore. Um, so maybe they'll do the same kind of thing with that. I'm really not sure. Yeah, I'm mostly curious, just uh, more along the lines of how organizations are actually going to, you know, start implementing it if they're going to implement it, if they realize the costs associated with it. I know uh, a couple episodes ago we talked about the Azure Express Route uh, deal that Microsoft had going on, where uh, they would not charge you, but the provider would still charge you. So, I guess I'm I'm curious how this is all going to play out uh, if organizations are going to look at it and say, well. Does it really, you know, is uh, is it worth it to have the peace of mind to have all of our traffic go across this uh, MPLS network, or is it okay for it to go out into the public internet and us not get charged for the bandwidth there? Um, the one thing I definitely look at it and I say, hey, that's you know, smoking hot if you want to talk that way. But uh, the thing that makes me raise an eyebrow and makes me look at it and say, yep, we can definitely start using this. There's more just the, the security mindset behind it because so many organizations are still you know, leery about having uh, all their traffic go out and traverse the internet and then go back into a data center, even if it's SSL encrypted, even if they're using you know, ADFS with some two-factor auth or multi-factor auth. <clears throat> I definitely see this as being something that uh, will help in that security space. Um, like you said, it's all of a sudden magically Office 365 uh, hosted service being made available to them as though it's part of their network, slightly extended. Yeah, so, so the one question that hasn't been answered is um, in that space of organizations that are going to want to turn Office 365 into a real private hosted service. So over in Azure land, what I can do is I can... Um, I can completely shut down ingress from the internet um, with network security groups and cloud service ACLs and things like that, or just general security to a lot of the, the PaaS services. I can say, um, you know, here's the, the Cedar ranges that are allowed to come in um, for something like Azure SQL, right? Um, you don't necessarily have that ability to do that in Office 365 unless you've gone the full-blown route of standing up ADFS and some other things. So it'll be interesting to see if they come up with a solution of saying, let's really move to the point where you can encapsulate your Office 365 tenancy and shut down everything from the outside and make sure that it routes always through the express route, not only on the way up to it, but on the way back. Uh, and, you know, there are organizations that aren't going to want their people to be able to get to that from home. They might want to allow it for licensing or something else. Um, you, you know, hey, we get five device activations for... Um, for our office clients and things like that, but they might not actually want to allow it for services. 
Or what is that going to look like with a bunch of the other things that are uh, being announced right now? So we've got, uh, we talked last week about uh, things like the conditional access policies in Intune and bringing some more of that MDM uh, into um, the, the iOS, Windows Phone, and Android spaces. So uh, what is that going to look like with some of these other things? I, I, I think it's infinitely interesting. Um, and it definitely, it solves a real need today of organizations saying, um, hey, we need a low latency connection. Uh, the privacy part is going to be kind of tough to sell on until you can completely shut down that, that outside wall to Office 365. True. Uh, and hopefully we'll start to see some of that uh, come out soon. But who knows? Uh this may end up being like the messaging that we saw for uh, the Windows updates for SharePoint. Um, but um, so I guess, uh, you know, for other folks out there besides Tim, uh, if you do have follow up, feel free to hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, or you can email us at info at brewery.fm. And if you've got a minute, pop up on iTunes, go on, search for us. Uh, there's a direct link to us in the show notes or on the website. And give us some feedback. We'd love to kind of know what you guys think, what you're looking for, and whether or not you like donuts. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the other things I'd throw out there, Dan, is uh, we yeah. always publish uh, show notes for all this stuff. So we would have uh, links to all of these announcements and where things are published on the Internet. Uh, you, you know, we, we, we do throw those links out in the show notes. So folks can phone, uh, find our show notes uh, out at the pub. So pub.brewery.fm. Uh, slash brewery 007, uh, since this is episode seven. Um, so, you know, same, same, uh, uh, same pattern is followed for all the other episodes. So if you wanted to find the show notes for episode six, where we talked about uh, Intune and conditional access policies, things like that, that would be pub.brewery.fm slash brewery 006. Um, so we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll keep that format moving forward. Um, and just want to remind folks that, that show notes are a great place to go out and, and figure those things out because depending on your uh, pod catcher client, so if you use something like iTunes, iTunes doesn't show the show notes, uh, but richer clients like Downcast or uh, Overcast uh, will show those kind of things. No, good point, Scott. Thanks for, thanks for reminding us. Um, you want to run us through a couple of the quote-unquote general news stories of the day you've been following? Sure. So there's been a bunch of stuff that's happened over the last couple of weeks. Um, one thing that popped up, uh, and it was kind of the whole internet threw up their hands and said, uh, really, who cares, uh, is the shutdown of Google Code. So for anybody out there, uh, you know, Google Code was another one of these just repositories. Uh, could have been um, analogous to something like CodePlex. Uh, been out there a long time. Uh, and, and now it's dying down. We really don't need it. We have services uh, really like GitHub, right? Like this whole uh, distributed version control system thing is really taken off. Um, GitHub seems to be one of those kind of preferred repositories out there today. Um, so the, the Google basically came out and said, hey, nobody's using it, so we're going to turn it off. Um, and Google usually only turns things off when people are using it. So that, that was actually kind of interesting to me. So... The only thing I can say about this is I'm mildly annoyed because I was probably one of the three people using it. And I know you're probably sitting there going, whoa, 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 what? You're using Google Code? Um, there was a little product or project out there called Gmail Send Delay that allowed you to queue up messages and use, I guess, the Google App Engine. 
and it would read directly from your Google code. So I had gone through, taken an instance of a Gmail sin delay, and unfortunately, now I have to figure out some other way besides using something like Boomerang to send Gmail messages in a delayed fashion. So well, so, curse, so, you. curse you, Google Code. <laughs> you know, those developers can take all their, their projects and everything and move them someplace else, right? It's, it's not the end of the world. It's just that the kind of authoritative resource or the source of truth for those projects is going to have to move um, uh, to a better home on the Internet. True. How about you? You find anything interesting going on? Uh, you know, probably the one more interesting thing that uh, made me giggle last week was not really technically related, but uh, <laughs> uh, Vladimir Putin, I guess he's the prime minister or leader of Russia. Uh, he uh, he went missing for about a week and Washington Post had <clears throat> basically uh, a little Vladimir Putin tournament edition where it showed, you know, what he was actually doing, what he was potentially doing. Um, that just kind of made me laugh. Uh, Turns out, apparently, he had the flu. Uh, that's definitely not a good thing. Hopefully, you know, he's back up on his feet and uh, the country is back down, uh, working towards the appropriate direction of whatever Russia is doing. But, uh, yeah, that was just kind of one of those funny things. I think one of the items they had in there as to what is Vladimir doing was uh, binging on House of Cards to catch up like everybody else. So. Someday, I too shall get to be like Vladimir and binge House of Cards. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll just have to queue up your uh, Amazon Fire TV and and let it run through. You know, I wonder if he was uh, uh, doing a quick visit to the Ukraine and hacking some routers or something like that. Uh, I saw an interesting story pop up um, uh, where a UK internet provider decided to uh, magically route a bunch of traffic from the UK uh, through to some servers in uh, Kiev in the Ukraine um, and then bounce them back to England before sending them out into the real world. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, one of the interesting things about this is they, they, they were doing it for a bunch of customers, right? This was a uh, British telecom. Um, so it affected about 167 customers. And one of them was Pepsi Cola. So now maybe, um, you know, somebody in the Ukraine has the secret recipe for Pepsi Cola. Uh, the other really good one was a uh, maker of uh, nuclear uh, weapons technology. Um, a bunch of their traffic was routed that way, too. So always good to um, see that stuff, um, you know, just just go someplace because somebody screwed up a, a routing table someplace when they were making an update to a router. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's almost as good as, you know, Google watching their compute engine crash a couple times in the past three weeks. Uh, geez, routers going down, Google code going away, Google compute engine having issues. What's next? I mean, what are we going to see? Are we going to see Robert Downey Jr. do something? <laughs> you know, uh, well, uh, you know, Iron Man delivered an Iron Man arm to a kid who... Uh, lost his arm in a, uh, an accident. So uh, they actually had Robert Downey Jr. It was pretty awesome. He uh, uh, stepped out and um, helped with getting a uh, prosthetic arm to this to this young child um, that's fashioned like the arm of Iron Man. So you got to imagine how, uh, how fun uh, or what a great week that kid had, right? Just walking around and probably trying to 
um, punch walls or shoot laser beams, you know, out of, out of his hand or something like that. I think that's probably the dream of every child to be able to have the little repulsor packs on their palms and push people away or maybe fly. But wow, that's, that's pretty crazy, man. Um, <clears throat> speaking of, uh, you know, things that are somewhat interesting, um, and I, I don't know how Christian Buckley will react to this, but museums around the world are starting to ban selfie sticks. Uh, to me, this is, you know, kind of a no brainer, although it seems kind of silly at the same time, but I guess it's somewhat akin to just saying, Hey, no cameras allowed or no flash photography allowed inside the museum. Um, I guess it was just getting to be too much of a problem. I personally have never actually seen someone using one of these, but uh, I would, you know, suspect that uh, Christian would be one of the first to uh, be using them. Yeah, I think he uses just his arm, and he's pretty good at it. But um, for those that do use the, those sticks, you know, uh, that was a ban at the Smithsonian, correct? So um, all those museums in Washington D.C. Yeah, I think it was a Smithsonian, but I believe it was more than that. I've seen it uh, other museums as well, kind of starting to take place. Uh, I want to say like the Met and maybe the Metropolitan up in New York as well, just kind of said, nope, no more. Um, too many of these people just, you know, kind of making a mockery of these museums. So to some extent, I definitely do agree with them. Um, to another extent, I think it's just kind of silly that they're breaking your, you know, telling people, sorry, you can't bring these things in here. Well, I think one of the other things, too, was just having people kind of bump into things. So if you're holding the stick and you turn around, um, you know, one of the big places museums spend uh, their budgets, um, they, they don't tend to spend it on like security of, hey, don't steal our things. Uh, they tend to spend a lot of that money on um, let's keep people far enough away from things that they don't break them. Um, I was listening to uh, an interesting thing on uh, Planet Money or, or one of those podcasts where they were actually talking about the business behind museums and uh, you know how easy it is for people to steal things from museums uh, because they don't put any of that uh, security into actually you know they put alarms on the walls and things like that but it's really expensive to put that security in place they tend to spend a lot more money on making sure that visitors to these places um, don't break anything while they're there. So I could see everybody walking around with a bunch of sticks and just turning around and twirling and things like that. And, you know, if it's if it's crowded and and uh, you're not paying attention to the person next to you, uh, you, you've got some black eyes and, and some general ill will between your patrons. Yeah. And actually, it's, it's funny you bring that up. Uh, is it a holiday party at I think it was the National History Museum? <clears throat> and uh you know, I used to think all these times when I'd be walking around in a museum and I'd see like a splotch on the carpet, I'd be like, oh man, some kid had their juice bottle and they knocked it over and, you know, what's going on here? Why are these kids allowed to have drinks in these museums? And then, you know, there was this party, holiday party at the National uh, History Museum. And then uh, last summer when WPC was here, WPC, yeah, that's right, um, they had a party for the partners at Air and Space Museum. And I remember being there and kind of the same deal. It's, you know, food, uh, beverage, all sorts of stuff everywhere. And, you know, you can only imagine that uh, parents that <clears throat> may or may not have a few drinks um, or non-parents that have few drinks uh, probably just have as many or more spills than little kids do. So, yeah, 
totally understand that. Um, but you know, if, if it's not for the downward trend or the downward fall of, uh, folks drinking alcoholic beverages in museums while ogling, you know, a T-Rex, we, uh, we now have cards against humanity online. So that, to me, that's just kind of ridiculous. I don't know if you've played Cards Against Humanity. Uh, I know one of our friends up in New York City who likes the movie One Day um, seems to be a big fan of it. But uh, I'm I'm really curious how this Cards Against Humanity online is going to stick, or if it's not going to stick. Uh, you know, one of the things about that game is is the interactions of sitting around a table and having the uh, the real time reactions to it. So it's you know, a card game for something like Magic the Gathering would probably work pretty well, but, um, you know, maybe they can incorporate some uh, some video messaging or something in there so, you know, you can get your shocked look on your face. Or maybe they can do it like um, uh, like Google Hangouts does, you know, when you type uh, woohoo in uh, and the, uh, the little guy pops up on the screen to, you know, wave his arms in the air and, and tell you you've done a good thing by typing that. Yeah, it- I can only imagine that uh, it's going to go downhill pretty quick, though. So, any other uh, fun things going on your way, dude? Or anything you've noticed that is uh, pretty rock and awesome? You know, the last thing that I could think of uh, was, um, I don't know if you saw this announcement about the the hot dogs in Krispy Kreme donuts and uh, all the, the gooiness that came along with that. And then later on in the week, uh, there was an announcement. There's a new Lego set coming out uh, for uh, the Quickie Mart from The Simpsons. So uh, it's going to have Apu and Homer Simpson um, and Snake and a bunch of other folks. It's it's like a two thousand per set, uh, two thousand uh, piece set, uh, and hopefully we'll have some like bacon wrapped uh, Apu approved Krispy Kreme donuts coming out of the Quickie Mart. So I may have to go buy this. Um, I hadn't actually noticed this, but yeah, um, I'm probably going to have to go buy this. This is kind of ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It it looks great. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too. Everybody can uh, go out and purchase their uh, copy of the Quickie Mart to put on their mantle. Craziness. Um, I think the only other thing, general news, and I don't know if you remember this from back when you were stateside, I guess next year you'll experience it again, but March Madness is upon us. So I don't know how many people are actually going to listen to this podcast just because uh, March Madness kicks up. I think uh, it actually may have already kicked up a couple minutes ago with some of the quote unquote play in games, which are basically, you know, the ability for a team to say they played in the uh, tournament so that they can hopefully attract better talent, but typically get uh, schooled by whoever the number one seed is in their region. So that's going on. Um, and then I had one question for you, but uh, last night I, I got crazy and I rebuilt my MacBook. So it's running a lot better. Oh my gosh. Um, after going through a couple different upgrade cycles, um, it just was continually deteriorating and i know you've kind of seen this as well on uh times when you've gone through like you know 10.6 all the way to 10.9 without doing a fresh build and it's doing a lot better and it's been kind of fun to go through and you know rebuild which apps i want to use which i don't want to use and i'm kind of curious what one functionality is that i'm looking for that i can't seem to find but what would life be like with you for you scott if you didn't have the bartender app uh I would not be able to use my Mac without Bartender. 
So Bartender is a little app that sits up in your menu bar. Um, and what it does is it's kind of a sub menu bar. So it just gives you a little ellipsis and then it groups a bunch of other things in there. So uh, I'm walking around with a 15 inch uh, MacBook Pro um, or even on my Mac mini when I go ahead and um, VNC into that, um, you know, the, the resolution is tiny enough that um, all these apps that we're running usually have a menu bar uh, component to them. So having all those little icons, what'll happen is they'll just run off the screen and you won't actually be able to get to something like uh, Dropbox or BitTorrent Sync or Audio Switcher or Switch Res X or any, any, any one of these number of things. Uh, so what you can do is actually group those into menu bars. So things that you don't use all the time, but that you really do want to have up there, um, you can throw those into Bartender and uh, then you just click the little ellipsis and there they are for you. Um, that would definitely be like one of my must have um, apps for a Mac. Gladly give that developer, you know, the 20 or 30 bucks or uh, whatever that is once a year to keep it upgraded with major revisions and keep it going. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully that does not go the way of the dodo. So <clears throat> on to the tech news. Um, one of the cool things that was announced uh, last week and we failed to really pick up on it and announce it was Azure picking up uh, A10 and A11. So I know back in the olden days when we kind of mocked Azure a little bit just because they were trying to do infrastructure as a service and they really just didn't seem to know what they were doing. Um, we would look over to our brethren playing with AWS and we'd see, you know, 28 different types of virtual machine that you could go uh, purchase and use. And we had four types that we could use. And they weren't even named anything but what extra small, small, large, and extra large. So it's kind of one of those where it was, you know, scratch head, wonder what the heck. Um, so yeah, they released A10 and A11, which for anyone curious, um, they're essentially, I believe, the A8 and A9, but without the additional uh, RDMA network adapter. So they don't really have a back-channel LAN, but they still have the processing power and the uh, <coughs> RAM to uh, be able to go out and you know provide for some of those high-intensity compute needs that someone might have. So. I thought that was pretty cool. Hopefully we'll continue to see uh, Microsoft continue to release those. Um, curious if they're going to have any updated G series stuff in the near future, but uh, I'm guessing the current G series stuff is kind of hitting the limit of what technology can provide for. Do you need bigger G series VMs? I mean, those are the largest, so like those maxed out G, G series VMs are the largest VMs that you can get from an IaaS provider today. There's always a need for bigger and better, Scott. Um, yeah, you, you know, uh, the compute size thing is interesting. Um, Amazon's always had, um, call it infinitely more configurability here, right? Uh, and Azure is, is quickly catching up. I think one of the things that AWS has that Azure doesn't have today uh, that I do have conversations with folks about um, are GPU compute instances. Uh, and having the ability to do some of those things. So I, I personally, I don't really see too many people asking for uh, much bigger VMs than what's over in, in the G series if they really need that compute power. Um, but I do see people coming back and saying, um, when are we going to get GPU compute to, to do some of those kind of workloads? You know, I bet we're going to get GPU compute uh, on March 24th. I bet that what's, that's what Scott Guthrie is going to 
tell us all. Uh, actually, I'm kind of curious what he's going to be telling us because that news event that uh, they've posted out there on their blog um, seems to have gotten very little press, or at least I've seen very little press about it. Do you have any idea of what uh, is going to actually get announced then? Uh, so from what I've heard uh, and from what I've seen people talking about, uh, so that, that press release, they kind of threw it out and said, uh, we're going to talk about some things for developers and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just going to announce some new things. I did see some of the uh, tech evangelists out here in Australia um, coming back and saying, hey, um, you, you know, even if you're in Oz and we realize it's, you know, like 5 a.m. your time if you're in Sydney, um, you, you know, reaching out to certain folks and saying, you, you should probably attend this. Uh, there's going to be a new service that's announced. So uh, we'll see what comes from that. You know, I don't think it's going to be GPU instances uh, just based on, you know, people are saying new service. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of struggling to think of uh, any recent acquisitions that Microsoft might have had. So if you think about a lot of the new stuff that's come out lately, whether it's been like the migration stuff with Image or um, all the API management stuff that's come lately, uh, can you think of any companies they've bought lately that they might say, Hey, this would be interesting. And, um, it, it would be developer focused and they'll be integrating it into the Azure platform. Uh, so nothing really, you know, strikes me, uh, looking at that, but I do kind of find it interesting that, uh, out on the announcement page, you know, it says quote unquote, learn what's new and how you can build cloud scale web and mobile apps faster than ever before with less code. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, did did you, read the, you read the comments on that page? So, so if you go down to the very, the, the one and only comment that's sitting there, um, so it says mobile first world, someone should tell the Azure portal developers, which is hilarious because there is no way to manage Azure from um, like an iOS device or anything like that. Like if you try and get to the new portal, it just goes to an error page and says you have an unsupported device. So you have to go and either buy a third party tool or, you know, if you're on Windows, um, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Victor Willen. Um, he, he has an app that he sells, a universal app for Windows, uh, Windows Phone and Windows Desktop because it's universal. It goes between them. Um, I think it's called Azure Commander. It costs a couple bucks. Um, but it's hilarious, you know, that Microsoft keeps going this route and um, some of these teams just can't keep up, right? The portal team, just uh, they're not doing too well in hey, let's make this stuff actually available on mobile devices versus Office 365, who's coming along and saying, hey, guys, guess what? We just released a new version of our Office 365 admin app. Um, so we're going to make it easier for you to manage your tenancies from your uh, mobile device. True, but <clears throat> that begs the question of what the definition of uh, mobile first, cloud first means. But I think that's a, that's a discussion for next week. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that one, will lead, that, that one will lead up a little bit of time, huh? Yeah. Um, something else, you know, speaking of announcements and whatnot, uh, kind of made me laugh to see that Office 2016 Pro and Developer Preview got put out there. So they, I guess the, the Office team, CJ and those guys, well, I guess it wasn't CJ, I think it was Julia White and maybe, uh, don't know who, um, said something to the effect of Office 2016, it's coming later this year. And then all of a sudden we see this announcement on Monday, boom, Office 2016 IT Pro and Developer Preview. So it was kind of neat to go uh, tinker with. I haven't played with it too much. I've got it in the VM. So hopefully start getting to play with that a little bit. 
Um, the other thing they announced, I guess, uh, a couple minutes after that was, or maybe it was an hour after that, and I just was, you know, catching up on the Twitter feed, was the Skype for Business technical preview, which is being out, uh, pushed out there. So I'm, uh, I guess I'm kind of leery about this. I'm almost curious what this means for on-premise link servers, uh, if they're suddenly going to have Skype for Business on-premise servers that are available. Um, I don't know if you've heard anything or thought about that or, you know, heard what's going to happen there, if it's just going to be a service that uh, is controlled by Microsoft only. Well, back when they did this initial announcement that said, hey, we're rebranding Link to Skype, um, it was pretty much just that we're going to we're going to execute a rebrand and relabel some things. So today, the Skype for Business preview, uh, it works against uh, existing Link tenancies, whether those are Link Online or if you're using um, Link Server um, and you're in the that uh, Office 2013 SKU on-premises. So um, really at this point, it's just a UI change. It's not too much with um, a functionality change. You know, I, I, I thought it was funny, you know, some of the things that they had in the announcement, you know, uh, so, hey, we've got Skype for Business, and now from within Outlook, you can initiate a chat, and you have presence information. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. We could do that with Link the whole time, but uh, it, you know, really glad that you decided to um, call it out now. Uh, I did find it interesting that uh, as Office 2016 came out, so it was announced for Mac first, that, that preview came out um, for Mac a couple weeks ago, um, and now we have the Windows one. Uh, Skype for Business only came out for uh, for the Windows platform. It hasn't come out for the Mac platform. And Link 2011 on a Mac is just an abysmal uh, steaming pile of um, something or other, right? It's, it's, it's pretty bad. So I'm hoping this means that we're a little bit closer to a new uh, Skype client or a new Skype for Business or a new Link whatever client uh, for OS X. Um, and can continue to make that transition along the way. Uh, one of the things I also noticed about this, so I, I went ahead and installed the Skype for Business technical preview um, on my work laptop, because that's the, the Windows device that I have running around. And I don't actually get the new, new UI, uh, but a lot of other people in my company do. So uh, for those of us out here in Australia, we all run the uh, click-to-run version of Office. And everybody else back in the U.S. Uh, doesn't run C2R. They, they run the old uh, MSI installs. So if you're on the, that, that old MSI style of doing things, um, you get the new UI and everything works kind of pretty. Uh, if you're on a click-to-run version, you actually have to go ahead and deploy Office 2016, um, uh, I, that, that preview as well. So uh, I haven't done enough uh, research around it. I know on the Mac, I can run Office 2011 and Office 2016 side-by-side. I don't know or haven't seen if I can run Office 2016 and Office 2013 on Windows side by side um, because I have some, you know, that's my work laptop. I have some kind of critical stuff that I need to get done on there. Um, and it would really be bad for me if I didn't have access to tooling like Excel and Word to uh, work on customer documentation and things like that. Yeah, I don't know if you can. Um, <clears throat> I think if you were running like an MSI install of 2013, you probably could. Um, but I don't, cause I want to say the 2016 preview that they put out there. Um, I could have sworn I saw that was C2R like, uh, but I, I don't know. That's a good question. Something to huck, uh, puck around and put in follow up for next week. Um, yeah. If you could go ahead and do that on your work laptop and let me know, that'd be awesome. 
on it. <laughs> yeah, just just get back to me on that one, and we'll, we'll be all set. Um, so what else did we have? We had uh, Office Delve went out to everybody, right? Yeah, you wanted to delve into that a little bit, I think, right? Yeah, so n- now we're delving about Delve again. Um, so, you know, this was just, hey, uh, uh, this was one of those convergence things that came out. So uh, Delve has been GA'd and, and come about. Uh, and, you know, Microsoft's kind of selling it as a wave of the future. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. We've spent, uh, as uh, SharePoint professionals or uh, kind of consultants in that space, uh, I know I've spent quite a bit of time with my clients, and I can imagine you can as well, around doing things around, uh, let's make sure our information architecture is structured properly. Uh, let's make sure we have really well like managed navigational taxonomies um, to allow users to uh, browse and navigate and find information. And, oh, by the way, let's have them search for it. And now we have this brand new interface that says, uh, your IA and taxonomy be damned. Uh, we're going to help surface things to your users because uh, maybe organizations haven't been doing um, the best job of this. Um, I noticed one of the interesting things for me with uh, some of the Delve stuff is it doesn't always show what's actually the most relevant kind of things. So like when I work, um, you know, a good good example would be uh, my company is kind of, uh, we, we service commercial and uh, federal clientele. Um, so those tend to be different delivery teams. And I bleed across both of those. So I, I, do, I do work on, on both subsets and client sets. Um, being that I'm primarily a commercial resource, I tend to see a lot of stuff from the commercial guys. But then when I flip over to a federal project, I, I never see stuff um, bubble up through the feed. I still have to um, go out and tag sites and favorite them and things like that to find them. So it's definitely a work in progress and uh, coming along. I know we've deployed it on our tenancies. Um, and we actively encourage, you know, our uh, our user base to go out and use it. Um, I'm not sure. I, I haven't really had a chance to work with any large organizations or really anybody outside of us yet to um, see how it's taking off um, in the real world. Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of funny. There was an article that the CNN Money people put out there with the topic of Satya Nadella can see whatever what every Microsoft employee is working on. Um, and they kind of go through talking about Delve a little bit, but it was humorous to me that after they have, you know, four or five paragraphs of text, uh, they have an image of kind of what the Delve dashboard looks like. And then it says, the only documents Nadella or anyone can see are those that are shared directly or public. <laughs> so it's like, okay, thanks for putting in that little security concern thing, but your title is a little bit misleading. So hopefully, uh, hopefully Delve continues to learn, make things a little bit better, hopefully. Yeah, I we, you know we've talked about that security aspect of it before, um, and in in my head, you know the the way it's sold, um, that's something that uh, you know I I've been um, trying to tell clients myself for a little while, right? And, and you know if you if we go back like ten years ago when I started doing this stuff, everything used to be so locked down and so siloed and so compartmentalized. Um, these days it's really worth asking the question, do we need to be that lockdown? Do we need to be, um, that siloed in what we do and how we, uh, really don't share information. So if those things can be out there and they're appropriate, uh, you know, sometimes it's worth taking a step back and saying, were we doing this because it's the old way we did it? 
or are we doing this for a legitimate like security or compliance reason or something else like that? Because you know, you know, th there are both sides of it. So um, in general, if you err on the side of um, let's put things out there for people to see them, everything becomes a lot more discoverable, and tooling like this works a lot better. One day, Scott. One day it'll all come together. Um, so I know we have uh, some time left, but uh, looking at some of the things that have been going on, um, somewhat Microsoft related, I, I was heartbroken when I went to DearAzure.com and saw that it didn't actually go to the page that I wanted it to go to. What's up with that? Why, why is my DearAzure.com being taken away? What did they do? Oh, you know, who who knows what's going on here, why they did this. So for anybody that doesn't know, um, Dear Azure was this great resource uh, where somebody on uh, the Azure team um, either was getting real questions and turning them into um, some funnier kind of questions, or somebody was really having a good time just trying to um, answer kind of uh, core um, core functionality things on the Azure platform, you know, so uh, there, there was great things. Like there was a post about uh, the Karate Kid's Guide to Successful Cloud Pitches, um, you know, so if you were having trouble explaining the cloud and the model, you know, they went through in a, uh, a, a witty and insightful manner uh, and explained, uh, you know, how you can help do these things. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of sad to see it go away. You can still get to the RSS feeds through um, archive.org and things like that. You know, I'm thinking maybe a, a Tumblr site that replicates it or something would be good. You know, um, dear Azure memories dot, dot Tumblr or something like that. Maybe we can get you to set that up. Yeah, maybe we, uh, maybe we do go set that up and put some of our, <clears throat> our funny little stories of things that happen or just, you know, some of the goodness of Azure that can help solve problems. Like, uh, I think probably the more humorous ones were when they involved things like Darth Vader, but that's just me. Yeah. So, speaking of Azure, you want to you wanna tell us more about some of the cool stuff with RBAC, Scott? Uh, RBAC. So, mm, RBAC's not where it should be. So, so RBAC, role-based access control. Uh, one of the interesting things about that is um, when the portal came out, or when uh, really the, I guess, the service management APIs were envisioned, uh, they were never meant to work with that concept of uh, role-based access control. So we always had um, administrators and co-administrators, and uh, they were the ones who could do um, everything within the system, right? They, they basically had uh, the same rights as a deity. Um, so there's a couple good articles out there around um, how that solution was originally built out and how it applied to um, some of the APIs and management pieces, right? So uh, uh, the ASM, like the service management APIs and everything else. So uh, as they've started to roll this thing in, they've had kind of had to roll it service by service. So RBAC as it exists today is is uh, starting to make its way into the new portal. It was initially envisioned for things like Azure websites because that was, you know, that was the first product group that could get it out there. Um, it's basically based on uh, declarative actions for what somebody can do. Um, it's got a three core roles, owners, contributors, readers. So kind of similar to what we have in uh, SharePoint land, right? With owners, members, and, and visitors kind of thing. Um, contributors is really kind of probably the, the sweet spot. 
Um, so that gives people full management rights uh, just without the user management pieces uh, that come along with it. Um, so they, they don't get the ability to add new users to something, but if you give them access to something like an Azure website, um, they can go ahead and make changes they need to, you know, if they needed to uh, scale to a new size or uh, something like that. Um, eventually over time, the plan is to roll all this stuff through and have it be uh, really full fidelity through uh, like Azure Resource Manager, right? Um, so as we hit those things, um, there's gonna be a bunch of stuff that comes in because basically Resource Manager sits at the top and then everything in there is kind of a, a subset of that. So you're gonna end up with uh, resource type roles. Um, so across each resource type, so Azure uh, Management API, so, so uh, that would be one resource type. Um, BizTalk would be a resource type. ClearDB would be a resource type, something like that. Uh, so you eventually you'd be able to have a something like a ClearDB contributor um, and a BizTalk contributor and an ASM contributor, uh, things along those lines. And then what's going to happen is within each of those resource types, you're going to have different actions that breed out of that. So um, things like storage accounts, um, you know, you have to have read writes, you have to have maybe um, delete writes either within a container uh, or within a specific object. Um, for subscriptions, you're going to want to give uh, some other rights. Do you want to give people actually access to resource groups or to with a specific item uh, within a subscription, things like that. Um, best bets, manage them with PowerShell today. Uh, so all that stuff is out there. It's in the current PowerShell tooling. Um, you do have to switch over to the resource manager mode to, <clears throat> uh, to make it happen. So Azure PowerShell has two modes. It has kind of, uh, let's manage Azure. And the other one is, is the resource manager piece. Um, and then it's also exposed through the, uh, preview portal in a limited fashion. Um, so RBAC will, um, continue to grow and come into place. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the nice things about it is over time as it's added in, it's going to get more robust and it's going to really find its home probably in the preview portal. Like all that new functionality is not being um, backported to the old portal. So I would say for most folks, um, if you're not comfortable with PowerShell, um, first of all, get comfortable with PowerShell, then do it in PowerShell. Um, but if you're, if you're not, you can't for some whatever reason. Um, go ahead and uh, you know have a have a go at that new functionality in the preview portal. Yeah, the I guess the thing that struck me when they initially added this was the lack of uh, I guess configuration, maybe if you want to call it that, um, through the preview portal. Uh, just the fact that it was super limited as to what you could actually do with it, and. I guess, you know, to some, to some extent, hey, that's great. You know, they're starting to move down that path of making it available and making it uh, accessible to folks. But it just seemed like, uh, you know, for the R1, um, personally, I don't think I would even put anything in the preview portal. I would have just left it all PowerShell, let it be like Excel um, 2010 for any of the administrative stuff. Don't give them a GUI. Let them, uh, let them do it all through PowerShell. But... Uh, my hope is is that this will get better, and you know, based on everything we're seeing, uh, just through the documentation, all the stuff that you guys can go look up in the show notes, um, hopefully we will see this uh, continue to get better and continue to be more granular. Uh, granted, the flip side is is as folks go and start making 
grandiose, uh, you know, configuration changes and whatnot, we're going to start having more and more problems similar to what we see with like folks going in and breaking permissions on document libraries and SharePoint and everybody screams and runs around in circles and lights things on fire and then realizes, oh, they just needed to click inherit permissions from uh, the folder and everything was made good again. But, uh, you know, at some point, uh, maybe that'll be what we see Azure getting tooling for. Yeah, I, I think, like I said, the big um, downside to this whole implementation has been that it wasn't um, architected this way from the beginning, right? So uh, from the beginning, it was always going to be the concept of, hey, we've got administrators, and that's just about it. So they've really been uh, just kind of bolting this stuff on as they can, uh, and it's led to this interesting place where uh, each service resource type uh, is really going to have its own individual set of actions, um, which actually might be a really good thing at the end of the day because something like BizTalk should probably have different actions than a ClearDB MySQL database, right, or a virtual machine or things like that. Um, what's going to happen is those individual product groups need to, that, that work on those pieces of functionality are going to be responsible for introducing those things into the API. And then as they get surfaced in the API, they'll eventually make their way into things uh, like PowerShell or like um, the management portal, right? Because ultimately, all those things that you see, uh, and I, I think a lot of people tend to forget this, is uh, the preview portal and the current Azure portal and the current Azure PowerShell commandlets and all that stuff, they're really not doing any like magic sauce stuff that uh, we can't do as customers that consume Azure ourselves. They all consume the same APIs and endpoints um, that we have access to as consumers, right? So, uh, you know, sometimes people complain that, oh, um, you know, PowerShell doesn't do this, um, but the portal does, or the portal does this and PowerShell doesn't. Ultimately, all that stuff is driven by some REST APIs. So as long as you have a friendly developer on your team, like Dan Usher, who is now a developer, or you are comfortable going out and kind of writing some of that stuff yourself, right? So we can write, um, we, you know, we can invoke web requests and everything in PowerShell. We can write and consume .NET classes and everything. Uh, so really, you can get to the space you need to. It's just a matter of taking a step back and saying, how do we get there? Do we need to write some of this stuff ourselves? Should we wait on the Azure product groups to uh, come up with the tooling for us? You know, you, you have to find the happy medium in there. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing that, you know, just to kind of remind folks, a lot of this, like you said, goes back to uh, not being engineered in the first place. It cracked me up. Uh, actually, I think it was this morning. It cracked me up when a colleague of mine said, hey, can you check out my script? Why isn't it doing what I want it to do? Why is it saying I have an authentication failure? And it's because all that resource uh, group, resource management stuff uh, was bolted on after the fact. So you have that Azure switch mode flag or commandlet that you run to switch it over to the service management uh, API instead of, or excuse me, to the resource management API instead of the service management API. And it's just, yeah, hopefully it'll, you know, eventually converge like the conference, but uh, not right now. You know, someday we'll get everything we want and um, the world will just be a perfect place. But until that day, we're going to have to continue to uh, just muddle our way through, right? Yeah, we'll muddle with like, I don't know, Azure SQL dynamic data masking maybe. <laughs> have you had a chance to play with that at all? It's, 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 really, uh, uh, it, it's really a great enhancement to that service. You know, Scott, they don't let me play at my job. Come on. 
Uh, well, you know, maybe, you know, I figured if you're working with any kind of sensitive data or anything on, on, on a project or something, maybe you'd be going out and asking your developers or, again, because you're a developer now, maybe uh, you could be doing this yourself. So uh, one of the really cool things uh, about this new SQL engine they've introduced, so, uh, you know, we had like the V1 engine and the V2 engine for Azure SQL. Now we're up to the V12 engine. So for folks that are either creating new tenancies in V12 um, in Azure SQL, or they've upgraded their existing ones, um, they're getting uh, fuller fidelity and compatibility with on-premises SQL Server. Uh, so a lot of things uh, shouldn't break. You know, the, the the way Azure SQL was architected in the past, you know, they were trying to split away from SQL, and now they're coming back and saying, we're going to make it more like it. And by the way, we can release some, uh, so, some really cool new things, um, you know, to that cloud-first world. So... Uh, sensitive data. Uh, so if you think about something like a social security number, maybe in an HR database, um, so your HR uh, employees might need to be able to see that and input that and play with it. But uh, maybe there's somebody else who just needs a report, like a manager or something, but they don't need to see what those are. Um, so what you can do is you can actually have different logins that apply to um, policies against um, Azure SQL so you can say for something, when this uh, user queries uh, database X and uh, they're trying to get uh, data back from this table, so there's a column called SSN in there, um, if I'm this just regular viewer user, um, Azure SQL automatically on the fly is going to convert that data into just a series of Xs, so it would just be nine Xs across the board. Um, and if they're that HR user coming through, um, the data is going to come back cleanly for them. So what we've actually done is mask the data on the SQL side and we don't uh, necessarily have to worry about it, uh, you know, maybe a, de a developer remembering um, to implement that logic over on the application side of things and uh, get it all running. So uh, it's going to require a couple different things. So uh, if folks want to uh, leverage this functionality, there's some different endpoints that they need to leverage when they connect to Azure SQL. Uh, so basically, rather than going to your old SQL database name, um, there's a dot .secure that you can add in there to the fully qualified domain name in your connection string. And when you do that based on the user that you connect with um, and the policies that are in place is what's going to be returned um, in the data. I think it's really cool. Um, it helps us uh, split out some of that logic and control it a little bit more um, on the SQL side and maybe we... Uh, we don't need to worry about it as much in the application. Not that we shouldn't worry about it, uh, but it, it doesn't need to be as hardcore a thing. Um, and in addition, we've had, since we've masked it on the SQL side, now when it's coming across the wire, the data is actually coming masked that way too. So um, if that user that connected to that secure endpoint wasn't supposed to see it, there's no way that they're ever going to see it because it's literally returned as a string of X's. It's never the, the string that um, maybe they thought they were going to get. Yeah, and I think... Uh... <clears throat> I guess the one use case to me that I see this being super useful, <clears throat> and you can call me crazy on this, but uh, sample production data. Like, it, it always cracks me up when folks say, hey, we've got this sample system that we've built out and we, you know, are working, what do we use as test data? And obviously, we never really want to give uh, real valid data, but if we can mask it, then, I, you know, to me, that's just awesome. So... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to hopefully 
use this a little bit with some applications that folks are writing that are cloud-based. Um, we'll see. Yeah, I, I don't know how much it's going to help you in that um, kind of using production data in testing. Because usually what would happen is um, if we're going to port production data into a test environment, um, at least my mindset has usually been we want to mask those things before it goes into the test system because test is really test. So we'd want to randomize it and make it fake anyway. Really, it is for those um, production scenarios, right, where we want to step in and say, this is the way our application is built and this is the way it's meant to function from a uh, from a platform side of things and all the business logic that, that goes into there. Um, you still might have a tough time selling your HR folks on putting real SSNs into a test system versus having to go through and do all the randomization and other things that you're probably doing today. I don't know that that'll be kind of the, the end-all be-all and let you uh, walk away from it. Um, it might get there. It'd, it'd be an interesting sell. You try it on a couple of projects and let me know how it goes. Yeah. And I mean, if you don't find me in jail, then we'll know that it worked. Um, no, I think, I think uh, you know, and maybe not in cases that are HR related, but other system uh, <clears throat> applications that are out there could definitely make use of this because we both know that it always is heartbreaking. Yeah, we'll use that. Uh, when someone goes and they create their own data set and they just put in really, really dummy data. I mean, it you know mimics nothing like reality. So hopefully maybe use some, you know, uh, randomization and whatnot on top of the data that's sitting in production. But if there's a way you can get at it, use it read only or even, you know, export it in some fashion to another database, even <clears throat> play with it there. Uh, that would be a lot more helpful to at least make certain that apps when we're going through that, you know, development phase uh, are actually using data that is somewhat more realistic. Mm, yeah. We can always hope. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, so I know we're running a little, little long on time or low on time, but uh, two things wanted to touch unless you uh, had any wishes on your birthday. Um, the first one was Windows 10 thoughts. And I know for me, um, Windows 10, at least on a VM, looked neat. Uh, I didn't really see any huge advancements, at least not yet. Uh, I'm really curious to see how Microsoft is already, you know, are able to take this and plug it into their mobile first cloud first story. Um, I think the one cool thing that we've all seen uh, demonstrated out there is the use of Cortana. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I, I think it's going to be an interesting operating system. I think you, you told me that you tried to put it on that little Dell venue, seven, eight, whatever that is. Yeah. I've got it running on a deviate uh, pro and uh, I, you know, I, I'm running it there. I've got it running in some VMs and things like that. Uh, my experience with it hasn't been great. Um, I still think Windows is horrible on touch-only devices. Um, so even with uh, continuum mode, so basically they have a new tablet mode, so let's make everything full screen. Um, Windows is just really frustrating to use. Um, very often the, the touch points are too small. Um, so, you know, you, you sit there and tap, tap, tap at something and it turns out you need to move your finger, um, you know, almost an inch in one direction or another, which makes you wonder what were the developers doing? I mean, it's not just, you know, third party app store developers, it's Microsoft apps themselves. Like if you try and use something like, uh, uh, the windows mail, the, the modern UI mail on that little DV8, 
um, it is an exercise in frustration. So you've got to break out either a mouse and keyboard or a stylus. So it's really disappointing um, to see those kind of things manifesting themselves and Microsoft putting, I guess, so much into the desktop. So uh, I'm, I'm a little biased. I come from that Mac world where uh, my iPad is really easy to use. It's single use. I pick it up and I'm kind of focused on one thing and you're in that thing. Um, but it also just works a lot better. Like I don't have the same trouble with touch points. Um, you know, it's got some good functionality built into it. Like if I'm scrolling a web page in Safari and you just top tap the top of the screen um, up where like the page title is, the page automatically scrolls back to the top. Um, stuff like that is just hugely helpful and it's missing on the Windows side and it's almost like they don't care about it. Uh, I think it's been 54, 55 days since we've had um, our last preview build come out. So there's been a couple of leaked builds that have come out, been talked about on The Verge, things like that. I think I saw earlier on Twitter this morning that maybe um, a new preview build came out sometime last night for me. So I, I haven't had a chance to run down and, and uh, fire up the tablet and see if that uh, new thing is available yet. I'm willing to bet it's not going to make it you know, a, a, a better device or easier to use or anything like that. Um, they've said that Windows 10 is going to come out over the summer. Um, so, you know, a kajillion languages, uh, 190 countries, something like that. Um, it's definitely not ready for prime time in its current state. So it'll be interesting to see um, what happens there. They've got a lot of revving to do. Um, if anything, even if they're not going to, uh, you know, make the interface better or anything like that, because like I said, it's not great now. They've got a, just a lot of stuff that's broken in there that needs to be fixed. Um, and not a lot of time to do it if they're going to actually go RTM over the summer. Uh, let's see, what else with Windows 10? I think one of the other things that came out uh, just uh, maybe yesterday uh, was they said, Microsoft basically came out and said Windows 10 is going to be free for pirates. Um, you know, they, they just want to get everybody over to this new model where they can um, release quickly and, and uh, do a lot better. So it'll be interesting to see what impacts that has on something like China and uh, the market that goes there, right? So everybody that's running pirated copies of XP and things like that, um, if they're going to buy into, hey, Microsoft is going to give me a free update, um, get up to Windows 10, and then Microsoft really hasn't talked about what the monetization model behind that's going to be um, and how they are going to um, get to where they need to be to make money off of that stuff. Um, it, it, we'll see. Um, they had some interesting stuff come out for uh, enterprises. Uh, so yesterday they announced the reintroduction of Microsoft Passport. I don't know if you remember back when, I'm sure you do, when Microsoft accounts were Passport accounts and then they became Microsoft accounts. Well, so now uh, Microsoft Passport is coming back um, or they're going to use the Passport name again because um, uh, you know it's hard to think of new names for these things and find companies that haven't already consumed them. Um, and they also announced Microsoft Hello, uh, which is going to be some of the new uh, biometric security built into Windows 10, which uh, I know will make a lot of organizations happy having some of those controls in place. It's going to require some uh, new chips and things from Intel. So like they want to uh, be able to do like face recognition and they're really relying on um, infrared built into the, the webcams on computers and things. Um, so Intel has some new cameras coming out. They, they want to uh, get those pieces and parts out there and uh, see what's going on with that. So, um, you know, in and of itself, that's a huge thing to announce. 
Um, and so now they've got to do that. They've got to deploy Windows. Um, they've got to keep up with security dates and everything else. They've got to finalize how this thing is going to work on touch-only devices, how it's going to work on mixed devices like a Surface Pro, how it's going to work on traditional desktops. They've got to convince organizations to upgrade um, and buy into the new system and what's going on with it. It's really like, it, I don't know about you, but I think it's a tall order to get it done by summer, um, especially in the current state that it's in. Um, maybe it'll drive, maybe it'll go to being one of those things that's kind of driven through consumers and uh, bleed back into the enterprise. But um, I know a lot of organizations are still, um, even like now, it's 2015. Um, there are some organizations that haven't started or are just finishing uh, their Windows 7 upgrades, right? They haven't even made it to Windows 8 yet. Uh, so going from, you know, those organizations that are going to make the jump potentially from Windows 7 to Windows 10, um, it, it, it's going to take some time to get there. Yeah, and hopefully uh, <clears throat> hopefully we'll see more and more organizations start to maybe see what the benefit is, I guess, of uh, using something like Windows 10. Personally, I'm most excited about being able to load it up on my Raspberry Pi 2, but that's just me because I'd love to just be able to have that sit on a desk with a keyboard attached to it and not have to worry about any other devices, but that's just me. Well, that's going to be Windows Server, right? So that that's, that's a different thing, and it'll be interesting to see how it works on the Raspberries. And um, we really don't know uh, what happened to Windows on ARM. Um, and, and what happened there, right? They said, we're not going to make any more RT devices uh, like the Surface RTs. Um, and they also said that Windows 10 really isn't coming out for RT devices. They're going to release some new updates and things. Um, so that space, you know, I, I'm not sure if Windows on ARM is dead, if it's just Windows RT that's dead. Uh, maybe they want to focus more on the phone and bring some of that functionality back with universal apps and uh, whatever's going on there. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I guess um, it's kind of one of those curiosities because Microsoft said for the maker community, hey, we're going to have uh, Windows. I could have sworn they said they were going to have Windows 10 for uh, Raspberry Pi 2. Um, and you might be right. It might be the Windows uh, <clears throat> server edition, whenever that comes out, that they'll make it available for it. But um, yeah, no, no, no. So February 2nd, 2015, real-time follow-up. Real-time follow-up, Scott. Windows 10 coming to Raspberry Pi 2. So I am curious to see which edition of it is. Um, obviously, it'll be some variant since it's uh, the ARM processor on the Raspberry Pi 2, but we shall see. Yeah, I, 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 I thought I had seen in an article someplace out there that it was going to be Windows Server of some variant, um, but... I don't know. I'll have to dig around and see if I can find something around that. Maybe we can follow up on it next week. Yeah, maybe. Um, something tells me that's going to be something we definitely have to follow. Um, the other thing, Sling TV. <clears throat> you uh, you doing this? Uh, nope, not doing it because I'm not in the U.S. No, no, no time to get there and figure it out. I don't have an Xbox One or anything, so I wouldn't get the uh, uh, the extended preview. Um, one of the other things that kind of hurts, so uh, Sling TV is a new service, um, kind of uh, streaming service, streaming TV. Uh, it doesn't have DVR functionality with it. So being that I am UTC plus 10 and about to go to plus 11, 
Um, I, I'm really not in the right time zone to be watching US TV real time. So the other thing to consider, <clears throat> and this one just uh, definitely kind of made it hurt, but it, apparently Sling TV is single stream only. So I think it's uh, I think Netflix, depending on what you pay from a payment perspective, is single stream for the lowest account, dual stream for the mid tier account, and I think like four streams for the high tier account. So just be wary that uh, Sling TV, I believe, is coming out single stream, which means you can only watch it on one device. So yeah, m- most of the other services are this way. So um, Hulu is the same thing, um, single stream through. Um, uh, HBO Go, I believe, does that. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of similar to Hulu. Um, you know, it's got a lot of the same things. Let's have an online portal. Let's have some apps on um, mobile and and for some of the gaming consoles, things like that. Uh, it still has commercials with it because it's really just real time stream TV. Um, it's going to be channel differentiation. Um, and Hulu's kind of past shows or something that was released just yesterday. Uh, and this is kind of real time and what's coming along with it. Uh, one of the interesting things about Sling for that cord cutter side of things is uh, I believe it's going to have, or it does have uh, ESPN uh, so that uh, customers who are watching sports, um, you know, that's always been missing um, from Hulu and some of those other services. Yeah, dude, it's, it's wild stuff. I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm on the fence, you know, as a single guy with, Lots of toys around the house. Um, may make sense, but I think for most families, it's probably not one of those things that's going to make too much sense. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe I'll look it up in uh, June or July whenever I uh, land stateside again and, and see what's going on there. Yeah, man. Sounds uh, sounds like a good plan. Uh, <clears throat> you want to you wanna put the landing gear down on this one and take us home? Yeah, let's do it, Dan. Uh, we'll chat next week, and um, yeah, I guess we'll talk about more Lego stuff. Yeah.